Go Genesis. We'll be in chapter 13. If you're using the, the blue pew Bible, it'll be page nine. And so well, if you weren't here last week, we are starting a new series this fall, uh, looking at the life of Abraham and the idea or the theme of grace as mission for us. So as you turn there, we're, I'm going to read all of chapter 13. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. And just before I read this, you'll note that um, I said the life of Abraham. And he's called Abram at this point, and his wife, Sarah, is called Sarai. I will subconsciously interchange those words throughout the sermon, I'm sure. But just so you know, I'm talking about the same person. Um, Okay. Chapter 13, verse 1 of Genesis. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot went with them into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and I, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord, and Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Verse 8, Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. We are men brothers. It is not the whole land, or excuse me, it is not the whole land before you. So separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was very watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Verse 14, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. We pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this morning and we pray that you would do a miracle and by miracle that you would soften hardened hearts to your word, that you would open our eyes and our ears that we may see and hear things otherwise we could not. Would you do that for your glory alone? We ask this in your son's name. Amen. I'm going to start this morning's sermon with a quote from uh, one of my favorite Old Testament scholars, 
Christopher Wright, and he says this in his book titled The Mission of God, which is appropriate for our series. He says, our mission flows from and participates in the mission of God. Let me say it one more time. Our mission flows from and participates in the mission of God. And another way to put that is that grace as mission, which is our theme for this fall, always begins with the generosity of God himself. But while that sounds nice and often, you know, um, something that we would be for, receiving that generosity is often more difficult than we may think that it is. And so this morning, I want to look at that, the idea of God's generosity as we see it through Abram and as we see it given to us as well by looking at three things there on your handout, the challenge of mission, mission, the character of mission, and the reward of mission. Um, And I'm realizing, which is always the case with me and Sermon Prep, that you could probably substitute generosity with the word mission there, if that's confusing. But if it's not, it's one of those words you could sub in there. So let's look at that first one, the challenge of mission, or perhaps the challenge of generosity. Um, I have told this story a number of times, and I, I don't think I've shared it with you, but it's a story that I've... Uh, I will remember this for the rest of my life. And so if you're going to be a part of my life, you're going to hear it. And it just has to do with uh, a wedding that Ada and I were able to attend um, when we were in seminary and we were poor. And we got invited to go to this wedding that happened to be in Crested Butte, Colorado. And so all we had to do is drive out there and we, we can make it. And so we did that. And I'll, I'll spare you, you know, all of the uh, the other details. But... What made this so significant for us was because, uh, one, it's Crested Butte, Colorado, and the, the father of the bride was paying for everything. So that's two nights in Crested Butte, Colorado, which is a gorgeous place. Um, and anybody willing to pay anything for a seminary student, that's already a great thing. And so it wasn't just that like our lodging was paid for. He had rented out restaurants for us. Um, I mean, we literally didn't have to pay anything. We just showed up and we ate. And then this was just sort of scratching the surface as we headed into Saturday, which is when the wedding was. And um, it was in this meadow um, outside their house by this river that's one of the best trout fishing rivers in Colorado. And there's this tent that looks something out of a Cinderella story uh, that was adorned with chandeliers. And you couldn't walk anywhere without people handing you Flutes of champagne, uh, or the, you know, the greatest that there is to drink, cigar bars. I mean, the whole thing was generosity and celebration on steroids. That's really what it was. And uh, you know, interesting enough, knowing a little bit about the family, that was sort of the, the groom or the, the father of the bride's intention. He wanted this wedding to be, uh, you know, to, to point us in the direction of the new heavens and the new earth. And I just say, well done, well done, friend. Um, it is. And I have to be careful when I say this, apart from my own wedding, it is by far <laughs> the best and most amazing wedding experience, and I'm sure Ada would agree, that we've ever been to. Moors, we're just happy to be there is the best way to put that. And I started here to say that, to, to say that weddings of any kind, whether they're like this or just you know a wedding like the one we had, Um, are are obvious to us in that our participation in them is always preceded by some type of invitation. 
Okay? Without that invitation, there is no wedding for you. There is no participation because the wedding itself is not yours. That wedding belongs to somebody else. It doesn't belong to you. And actually, it belongs to the parents of the bride who have invited you. You could say that as a guest, you are taking a role of receiving, that we've been invited into something that has been, uh, being pl- been planned for a long period of time. Often, an absorbent amount of money has been thrown at it. And really, the best that you can do as far as response is concerned is just to say, I'm happy to be here. And I think this helps us with where we are in Genesis 13 as we approach Abram, because everything for Abram or Abraham up to this point and moving forward is like this. It's like a wedding. Abram has been invited by God to be a part of something that God has planned for the benefit of the world. We know that it's going to end and, 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 and costing God his own son, but Abram doesn't know that yet. But as Abram receives this call to be a part of God's mission, like that wedding in Crested Butte, it first doesn't belong to him. This thing that God is doing It is the Lord's. He has planned it. He will pay for it. And Abram has simply been invited into it. And at the very least, he should just be happy to be there. If you're unfamiliar with the Old Testament and unfamiliar with Genesis in any respect, this is where Abram finds himself in chapter 12 and chapter 13 where we are. Because before all of this, Abraham lived in Mesopotamia and he worshipped wooden idols. That's where he was. He was what we would call a pagan, living in a community somewhere, worshipping some other gods. He doesn't know about the God of the Bible. He is lost like all of us until that God, what? Reveals himself to us. And so as we pick up in chapter 13, we see how utterly strange this story should be to us. I mean, you have, you have a man here. This is sort of a little bit of review, but it's important for our story in chapter 13. You have a man here who has said to his wife and to his family and to his friends, right, that we're leaving because a God that none of us have ever heard of before has told me to go. And then when Abram, later Abraham, is asked, where are we going? All he can say is, I don't know. That's how strange this should be to us. This is how this would have certainly have been, I'm sure to Abram, but perhaps more so to those who are following him. But for anyone to do that would have to be willing to what? Give up his or her own mission, his or her own plans for their lives to do this. And this is what becomes challenging for Abram. And I would argue this is what becomes challenging for us as we try to follow God as well. Because not only do we want to do things our way, right? we want our hands in the middle of all these things. We want to be in the center of this stuff. We want control. And what it means to lay down your mission, so to speak, and receive God's mission is to surrender that control. And Abraham and his family, they are coming up from Egypt, as we read last week, where things didn't go so well for Abram and for Sarai. Upon entering Egypt, as we remember, having received the promise that God would bless Abram and Sarai with children and that he would bless them with this land, Abram concocts some type of plan to keep Sarai from safe from the Egyptians by calling her his sister. Well, after all, she was his wife. And it's, it's a small thing. 
But it contrasts so greatly with what we've just read in chapter 13, where Abram will learn that receiving God's mission means giving up his own mission and the desire for control every step of the way. In short, it is not Abram's job as it is not our job to fulfill God's promises. That is God's. Therefore, Abram's job is to listen and to trust and to obey. And what comes into view for Abram, and perhaps a lot at this point, as they leave Egypt, is not just will they trust God, which is, which is something that we're always confronted with, but will they trust his generosity towards him? And that's a different question for us. God has made promises to Abram, and not just any promises, big promises. He has made foolish promises promises. You might say promises of land, though there is no army yet to take it promises of children to a couple who is now 75. These are not just run of the mill promises. These are the most generous of promises. And for some of us, trusting God's generosity to you is more of a challenge than laying down your own mission and finding yourself a part of a group of people who would call themselves Christian. But how has God been generous to Abram here so far? And this is really sort of, again, coming out of Egypt. We have to remember this. How has he been generous to Abram? And we'll see that over the flow, we'll see that over that the overflow, excuse me, of God's generosity is in this land and this promise of children. But that is not where God has been generous to Abram. God isn't just generous to him if and only if he gives him these things. God has been generous to Abram. You should say he's already been generous to Abram by calling him to himself. An idol worshiper from Mesopotamia. When Abram starts there, everything then becomes gift because none of it, like a wedding, was his to start with. And the same is true for us. As we find ourselves in the story, God's generosity to you is never made true in giving us the life that we always wanted. It's like giving us our hopes and our dreams, whatever that may be, may be. God's generosity is made true in what? In him giving us himself. The calling of us to him. That is his generosity. Everything else is icing on the cake, friends. Generosity is his calling us away from our self-destructive lives into a mission that is life-giving. When we, like Abram, did nothing to deserve this. And I think that's a point as we dig into this narrative, we recognize again, idol worshiper from Mesopotamia did nothing to warrant God's call to come and receive this blessing. And that, friends, is grace. And what could be more generous than that? This is the challenge of the mission mission that I want us to see from the beginning. It's receiving God's generosity. It's remembering that this thing that God is doing, it's not mine. And Abram's going to have to remember this. It's the Lord's. And like Abram, I'm just a participant in it. That it's grace that has brought me to this place would be the theme for Abram. Might also be a theme for us as well. And we'll see that as we get into the point two, the character of mission. When it's grace that brings you into the kingdom of God, grace then becomes what you have to offer others. Let me say that again. When we begin to see, and we start from the place that Abram is starting from, that it is grace that has brought you into God's kingdom, then we have something to offer other people, and that is grace as well. 
And this is what we mean when we say grace as mission. By the time we get to verse 5, we read of some conflict occurring between Abram and Lot, specifically their herdsmen. And see, in this situation, it's their wealth from Egypt that has caused the, all, these, all this uh, trouble uh, because of their possessions and, and their livestock. Uh, there isn't enough land for them both to be on at this point together, and so they have to separate in order to protect their livestock, but also to keep the peace that is there. And so in verse 8, Abram does the unthinkable here. I want to be pretty heavy on that statement. Um, This may not jump out at us as we just read it uh, ourselves, but this would have been unthinkable. Uh, Instead of pulling rank, right? Abram is Lot's uncle. He's older, he's wiser. Instead of pulling rank and saying, look, I will pick which direction I will go in. I will take what is mine. After all, God has promised it to me. Instead of what? He defers, He defers and he does it for the sake of peace. But we'll see that there's more going on here as well. As one commentary states, the generosity and the peaceableness displayed by Abraham on this occasion is applauded from one end of scripture to the next, from Genesis to James. Abraham has become generous all of a sudden, you might say. And he allows Lot to choose first because what's more important than getting what, um, what Abram wants is getting what God wants, which is peace amongst brothers. And how is he able to do that? Well, that's what grace does to us. When it's grace that brings us into the kingdom again, grace becomes what we have to offer others. And this becomes our mission. Remember, God's promises to Abram are a gift. None of this belonged to him. It was given to him. And since it's grace that has brought him into God's kingdom, he doesn't have to what? Assert himself into these areas. He doesn't have to manipulate circumstances so that they come out right for him. Kind of like what maybe he did in Egypt. He is free to trust that if God has promised me something, then God will fulfill it. Saying that is often easier than believing it. But when we begin with a premise that none of this was mine to begin with, which is what grace teaches us, then that gives us the ability to open up our hands and be loose with our possessions, be loose with our, our wants and our desires. We no longer have to work for number one, ourselves working all situations to work good for us because grace humbles us. It does not make us boast a life verse that has always been true for me. A life verse that has always been close to me, not true for me (laughs) is Ephesians two, eight to nine for by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. And so for Abram to say it a lot, you choose, even when he has the right to make that call, that's what he does. Grace humbles us. It does not make us boast in ourselves because all is gift of all is gift from God. Grace allows us to take our eyes off ourselves and to see others needs, not just your own. And that's what Abram is doing here. And so this is where the narrative picks up. It gets a little more intense. What happens here? Verse 10, Lot lifts up his eyes and he sees the Jordan Valley and he sees that it's well watered. Everything like the garden of, of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. Lot saw the land and he saw that it was good. And based on that criteria, he makes his decision. And it seems like such a small thing. It seems like something that any of us would do. All Lot did was look around and he sort of took a look, took a look at what was best. He said, I'll go this direction. 
but it's easy to overlook what's going on here. Lot is looking after and thinking about himself. There are echoes of Eden in this discourse as Eve in chapter three, like Lot, what made her decision not based on trust, but on sight. And the text makes it abundantly clear here in Genesis 13 that what Lot is doing is a mistake. At the end of verse 10, we read, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, which is coming in verse 19. It's sort of a foreshadowing. And then again, telling us over, now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. It's telling us that this is not the place that you want to go. And why did Lot want to go there? I don't know. We're not 100% sure, but the message is clear. Lot is trusting more in what he sees. And this will continue to be a huge theme for Israel as they come out of Egypt to take the land from the Canaanites. Well, they make their decisions based on what they see in the land, which will be mighty armies, chariots of over a thousand soldiers and horses, all this stuff. Or will they trust that God will actually fight for them? They just have to trust that God will fight for them. Will they live by side or faith? Several generations later in Judges, Israel will look around and see that the other nations are ruled by a king and they'll want that same protection too. They will say, we want to be like the other nations, again, living out of sight. And what is that? It's wanting control. It's refusing to live as God's covenant people, trusting in him, not what you see or what you want. And at the heart of it, it's denying God's generosity to you when he has been faithful over and over and over. And it's at this point when it's important for us to remember that the audience of which this letter, this story is being written is the Exodus community who is just you know, who's enslaved in Egypt for over 400 years and has been rescued out of Egypt and is now wondering, who are we? Who is this God that just delivered us? And here he is telling him the beginnings of the story of their, of their origins. And they too will have to begin to learn what it looks like to live, not by sight, but to live by faith and the promises that God gives him. And what has the ability to do this for us? And the answer is always the same. It's grace. It's what allows Abram to change from controlling things in Egypt, this is a chapter earlier, to deferring and saying to Lot, you choose. Look, I'll be fine. It's not my job to make sure God's plans are fulfilled. I don't have to work things uh, for good to me. None of this was ever mine to start with. So I don't have to assert myself. I don't have to manipulate and see if God's mission to Abram, and I would suggest ourselves, isn't one of grace to begin with. Then we must work to gain God's promises. And this leaves us, leaves him, with two options. One... We can become people who must assert ourselves into everything because it is up to us to earn what God has promised us. So if it's not grace, it's not giving to, given to us uh, as grace, then there is this understanding then that we've got to work to earn it or to remain in God's graces. And when we do this, we neither have joy in our work because we are wondering if it's enough to please God, but I think perhaps worse is that we can never be happy for other people as their gifts are being brought into the kingdom to work for God's good. Because when we see them, all it does is tell us that we're not doing enough. Are you the type of person that must assert themselves into every situation, that you have to be at the center of everything? And if so, have you asked yourself why? Grace, friends, diffuses that because grace allows you to say at the very beginning, this wasn't mine to begin with. 
That's really where Abram has to be if he's going to follow God and his promises. This wasn't mine to begin with. It's all gift. I don't have to earn God's favor or his promises because he's already given them to me. I don't have to be at the center working all things for good to me. But two, if you're not asserting yourself, a form of that can be that we feel we need to manipulate situations for our own good. If Abram doesn't see God's promises to him as grace, then he should let Lot decide first. Sorry, he should never let Lot decide first. He should do whatever he has to do in order to get what's his. Now, can you imagine a church where people are constantly asserting themselves into every little thing and or manipulating every little situation so that it works out good for them? Now, I want you to imagine a place a church where people know that it's grace that has brought them into God's kingdom. Therefore, grace is what they have to offer others. It's the character of mission. That's a different place. To imagine a place where people are happy to defer to one another because seeing peace between brothers, as Abram demonstrates here, is far greater, a far greater treasure than anything this world has for us. To imagine a place where manipulation never occurs because everyone agrees this wasn't mine to begin with. It is all gift anyway. And see, that sounds like a great place, doesn't it? Sounds like a place I want to be a part of. And when we begin to tap into those lines, we begin to see what the world that Abram and later Israel as God's people are called to create. Grace's mission. It is grace as mission to a world hungry for the peace that it brings. And the way that that character, if you will, becomes what you have to offer others is by recognizing it's what's brought you here in the first place. This will always be ground zero for Abraham and for the rest of the patriarchs and for all of Israel. Remember, 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 you are here because I called you here. I loved you. It has nothing to do with you. It has to do with my love for you and for this world. This is the character of mission. When it's grace that brings us in here, it's grace that we have to offer others. And this gets us to the reward of mission. Lot and Abram go their separate ways. And in verse 14 to 18 concludes this account with God, communicating it to, to Abram, his promises, much like what we heard in chapter 12. We're going to hear this a lot. And he tells Abram to look around north, south, east, and west. All that you see is yours. I will give it to you and your offspring, of which Abram, remember, they have none at this point. We hear the promise of land and children. We, we hear the words of descendants and offspring. And God is telling Abram that they will be like the dust of the earth. And if you can count that dust, then you will count the number of descendants that will come from your line. Foolish promises. But this is the generosity of God. And then God invites Abram to do something only kings can do. And that is walk over his land. It was customary for any king, whether he had conquered that land or inherited it, to, to, to walk over it, to travel over it. It was to take days and weeks, depending on the size of the land. But it was, it, it was symbolic of him claiming this for himself, that this was now his. And so God dignifies Abram in this remarkable scene by allowing him to walk over what it is that he has just been given. 
to walk over what he did nothing to receive. To have what he did nothing to deserve to get. The land, if God's generosity of calling Abram to himself wasn't enough, the land is just this sweet icing on top. But it's more than that, as we'll see in the coming chapters. The question for Abram is, can he receive it? And that gets back to trusting the generosity of God and the challenge that it brings us. Can we receive this? Will we receive what it is that God has promised us? And will we live in faith when, when it seems like, especially as we, we, we see down the road, uh, the Canaanites living in the land, the fear that comes up because I don't think that God is actually going to do this for me. Those types of things. This is what's so amazing about God. When you think that God has been nice, when you think that he's been generous to you, he's actually just getting started. And that's really one of the best things about doing a study in the life of Abram, Abraham. I can only imagine what Abram and Sarai were thinking as they walked this land. What an inheritance, what an adoption story, what generosity. But more importantly, what God is this? And that, friends, is the point. That's the point. This is one of these sections in the narrative where Abram kind of gets it right. Does a pretty good job of being faithful. He's not going not to get it right all the time. But this is one of those points. And we see God's rewarding of him in this. The account ends with Abram building another altar to the Lord. And the significance of this is there are Canaanites in the land is that this land is being claimed for Yahweh. That he will be our God and we will be his people. And with that, God's mission in blessing Abram, but also making him a blessing to the nations has begun. Friends, the reward of mission for for Abram and Sarai isn't that they get more stuff. It's not that they get more land here. The reward of mission here is that they get God himself. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. So what does all this mean for us today? I want to leave you with one simple thing that grace as mission for us friends has to begin with God's generosity. More specifically, his generosity to you, to call you to himself, to make you a part of his people. His generosity never begins the minute you get what it is that you wanted in life. But that it is that we get him. And where Abram and Sarai taste it as they walk over the land that he is giving them. And where Israel will taste it as God has delivered them from slavery in Egypt. We will see the fullness of God's generosity to us in Jesus Christ. It's paving the way for us. If we think this land is a a, a taste of God's generosity. And you know what that would mean for someone in this day and age like Abram. What are we to expect when Jesus shows up for us? When he dies for us, when he does something for us that we cannot do for ourselves, something that we do not deserve. This is God's generosity. And the question that's before you is, can you receive that? Or do you have to do something to deserve it, to earn it? This is the question for us as we leave chapter 13. Um, If I could go back to the wedding there in Crested Butte. Um, the whole experience, as I, as I talked, as I mentioned, uh, was, was something, you know, other, and I haven't, and probably won't experience much more like it, but I, one little detail I didn't mention that I, I want to leave here with is 
throughout the whole experience, there was this feeling in me that like, I just didn't belong here. Like, there was just sort of this pit in my stomach, if you will, that I had no business being here other than that, that we were invited to be a part of a wedding party. Well, I should be more clear. Um, Ada was invited to be a part of it because she was in the wedding. She actually sang, which is no small thing. I, on the other hand, let's make this about myself, was simply riding my wife's coattails into something glorious. Um, and to be honest, that, that kind of bothered me. Not riding my wife's coattails. Everybody knows that's the best thing I've got going for me. Um, what bothered me was being the object of generosity when I did nothing to contribute to it or earn it. When I truly belonged on the outside until an invitation was sent. See, it's that feeling when someone gives you something and does something for you, when you know that there is nothing that you can do to thank them enough, to repay it, to put the scales, uh, to level the scales, so to speak. And we know this because we don't like to receive things to which we did not contribute or to earn. If there's a DNA for Texans, I mean, that probably is it. But I would, I would say Americans in general. We don't like to receive what we did not contribute to and that we did nothing to earn. But friends, that is the gospel. That upon a life, as the hymn says, a life that I have not lived upon a death, I did not die. Another's life, another's death. I stake my whole eternity. In other words, it's riding someone's coattails into a world beyond imagination that is offered to you in Jesus Christ. And the question for us this morning is, can we handle that type of generosity? Can we receive it? And can we live out of response to that generosity, knowing that we had nothing to do with this? This wasn't our party, but that he loved and longed to bring us into it, to make us a part of it. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning in Genesis 13. And we thank you, Lord, that really on every page, but especially as we open the book of Genesis to the life of Abraham, we see your generosity uh, so clear. We see your generosity to a people who did nothing to deserve this, and it helps us to understand the type of God that you are. And it helps us understand that you will go, uh, there are no links that you will not go to, to express and to show and to share your generosity to your people. We thank you for Jesus as the fullest expression of that generosity that allows us the privilege of coming into a place that otherwise we had no business being. Would you teach us about grace? Would you teach us what it means to ride the coattails of someone better than us as we begin to enjoy being in your presence, such as Abram and Sarai did here? May our worship to you be glorified in this way. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.